Hi, this is The Tangled Podcast, a show where I talk to people who are working to design better systems. I'm Julian DiLorenzo. Whether in food production, energy, fashion, or the built environment, I'm interested in how we can use resources more efficiently and sustainably. My guest today is Dr. Michael Taylor. Michael is a mycologist, meaning he's an expert in fungi. Michael has spent years in academia doing research in public health, as well as looking at industrial and agricultural uses for fungi. Recently, he quit his university job to set up his own urban mushroom farm, where he is using agricultural waste to grow gourmet mushrooms. He's also experimenting with other novel uses for mushroom mycelium. As you'll be able to tell, Michael's knowledge of and passion for fungi is significant. I learned a lot from this conversation, and despite the lack of audio quality, sorry, I hope you still enjoy listening. And if you do like it, please subscribe to Tangled in whichever app you use. You can find show notes with links to everything that's mentioned in the discussion at tangledpodcast.com. Okay, here is my conversation with Dr. Michael Taylor. Uh, recently, I heard the mycologist Paul Stamets say that in healthy soil, about 30% of the matter is either living or dead fungal networks, mm-hmm. which makes it the largest store of carbon in the world, which sounded crazy to me. And I don't think I'm the only one who's ignorant of that. Can you talk about the role that fungi play in ecosystems and why it's so rare to hear it talked about? Sure. Um, I guess... One of the reasons fungi are never talked about, I guess I'll start there, is um, a lot of the stuff that they do is not visible. There's not obviously visible. So when when you say fungus, most people think of mold, um, which is in its own right generally pretty tiny. They're not big organisms. But certainly everyone would recognize a mushroom. But um, the mushroom is actually only a very small bit of the entire organism the actual the actual fungi the the bit that does most of the work is the underground bit which of course is mostly invisible so when people think about fungi and they think the mushroom is all there is there's so much hiding either under the soil or growing inside a dead tree or something like that that it almost looks as though it almost appears as though it's invisible the work happens by some imperceptible process and then the mushroom is the only signifier that it's even gone on so it kind of doesn't surprise me that it's just not part of our consciousness. I think there's also uh, the other the other side of that is um, there's also this strange fear of of fungi and mushrooms. Whenever you say fungus, people tend to have a kind of visceral re- visceral reaction of ugh, I don't like that. Or they say oh toadstools. Um, so there seems to be this this. Uh, distrust or or ill ill at ease feeling when it comes to mushrooms certainly in australia we don't have a really strong um cultural or historical um like use of going and picking mushrooms and for medicine or food or whatever and so when you talk to people about foraged mushrooms or mushrooms that don't recognize there is this immediate feeling of oh i wouldn't trust that like i wouldn't put that in my mouth or in my body it would be poisonous and it would hurt me so it's kind of not only just not part of our consciousness because we don't see it, but it's also not part of our consciousness because we sort of push it out. There's this mistrust. So so that's, I mean, that's a bit of a meandering answer, but I, I suppose that's why I think they're just one of those things that we don't really acknowledge uh, a, a lot. They're, they're pushed out of our minds by some kind of right. innate gross factor. 
Yeah. Uh, and sort of d- despite the fact that they're pushed out of their minds, they obviously their, their role is important. Uh, can you talk about what they actually do, what role they play in, in a forest ecosystem oh, or any ecosystem? Absolutely. So, I mean, they are, they're the recyclers. They're the things that break down the really inaccessible or difficult to get at minerals. They're, they're the things that make soil happen. They're the things that make it form. So, um, if we take a step back and is it's if we look at it from a chicken and egg point of view um, of there's these trees and they die and they need to get broken down and it's fungi that are the thing that do it the fungi came first they were the things that learned to break stuff down but trees came along and trees are made out of really complicated material they're made out of a, a lot of the bulk material in trees is this stuff called lignin which is this really massive complicated molecule um, that's got all these ring structures all linked together in crazy ways that makes it really hard to break down. And when that doesn't happen, so um, around uh, Chernobyl, after the um, the nuclear power plant melted down, there was a there's an area called the Red Forest that was full of all these trees that were heavily irradiated. And so the fungi couldn't actually get in there and break them down because they were too inhospitable so they had this entire forest that just existed and wouldn't break down and eventually became such a risk of forest fire and releasing all of those radioisotopes they had to bulldoze it into the ground so it in terms of step one they are the primary degraders they 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 return that stuff to the soil they also make inaccessible minerals available to plants and other things there because of their um, non-specific enzymatic processes they they essentially squirt out um, oxidative compounds, a bit like hydrogen peroxide, um, they can break down and liberate things like phosphorus from from minerals, um, calcium um, from rocks and other stuff, um, and it'll actually make them a soluble, available nutrient to not only other microbes but also trees and things. And one of the next things that um, they do in terms of forest ecosystems is they're what makes trees work as well. Trees can only really get to a certain size um, before their root structures aren't efficient enough to take up minerals and and water and and nutrients and that kind of thing. And so long ago, fungi evolved to um, colonize those roots, tree roots, in a beneficial sort of um, symbioses where the tree root tree root forms the fungi grow in and around and throughout that root and actually extend the reach of the of the tree root um, the the actual plant does a photosynthesis and provides sugars and other things back to the fungus the fungus makes available things in the soil minerals and what have you and allow the tree to actually get bigger than kind of waist height um, so without fungi then forests really wouldn't exist as as we know them they'd really just be grassland and and small shrubs and and that kind of thing so they carry out a range of 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 processes that are kind of secret and a bit hidden but without them the whole system just wouldn't work yeah when i when i first heard about that symbiosis with trees i was yeah really shocked you you definitely don't don't hear that talked about in sort of traditional um uh, you know, ecosystem. <laughs> not, not so much education, um, or at least I didn't. Um, but, but in terms of then food production in the future, mm. um, do you, I, I'm not sure if you you know much about it. What people are trying to do. Obviously, there's you know massive issues with population growth and how we're going to feed the planet. Yeah. Um, 
do you see a role for incorporating f- the use of fungi into farming systems to to help get more nutrients out of the farming arable land oh absolutely not not just not just getting more nutrients out of the arable land but um making farming more efficient in multiple ways so start if, if we look at getting more nutrients out of arable land if you have if you have to apply things like phosphorus to the soil and our available supplies of of um phosphorus that can be applied in a fertilizer form uh, cost money and uh, and will run out at some point. They're not they're not renewable currently. Then farming will slow down. But if you could find some way to incorporate beneficial fungi into soils that are otherwise mineral rich but unavailable, you could start liberating some of those compounds and and making what might be degraded or previously not arable land available um, because these things will actually live there and, and do some of the work for you you wouldn't have to keep applying stuff over and over and over um obviously that's really tricky at this point because the way we farm so intensively in such small plots um doesn't necessarily lend itself to some of the natural ecosystem processes but if you could say use larger pieces of land um less intensely you might be able to reap uh, a fair reward out of it um the other problem with farming so intensively in such small plots is we use a lot of um, chemical and treatments really to make it work, pesticides and herbicides and those kinds of things. Um, and we end up sometimes producing other problems. I mean, if you, what tends to happen is if you keep adding the same chemical over and over and over to the soil, you won't necessarily kill everything that's there, but if you're adding something that's not available as a food source, except for maybe one or two organisms. The nose organisms will eventually win. They'll be the ones that take over. And what can sometimes happen is um, if you keep applying, say, Roundup, um, and it pushes it to you only get one species of fungi, and that fungus is a pathogen, then you end up having a problem with um, crop pathogens. So you end up having to apply fungicides on top of everything else. If you could, say, incorporate a range of other beneficial fungi that just take up those environmental niches, fill the soil out with with beneficial competitors, you may actually reduce the need for fungicides and other things because you've just enriched that ecosystem. What tends to happen from an ecosystem point of view is if you have a range of different organisms all competing for space, say 100 organisms all competing for space, and each one gets 1% and nothing takes over, and it's all roughly in balance. Whereas if you push the conditions out of order and you end up with it's 50% one organism and then everything else gets their slice, that 50% organism, the thing that's taken over, can end up being a problem. It might be able to act like a very weak crop pathogen, but when it's at the 1% level, it's not a problem. When it's taken over and it's at the 50% level, suddenly it is a problem because all of its competitors are, are kind of suppressed. So if you can, say, incorporate beneficial fungi into either a soil inoculant or a composting process or something like that, you, can, you may even be able to end up um, not just increasing soil health but increasing crop health just through better ecosystem management. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and say in the in the case of australia would it be would it be necessary or uh yeah would it be necessary to in be inoculating soils with specific native fungis as opposed to sort of making a guess that a certain other exotic fungi will work in in a in a native habitat and then sort of make things worse by adding a new species in is that is that a risk um yeah it is it is always a risk any any um biocontrol 
or bio augmentation process where you're you're adding in something that's not native it does come with 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 a degree of risk um certainly we have a very we we have a huge array of, of fungi in australia but they're drastically understudied we really have I've looked at maybe 2% of them in terms of looked at them and named them. So in terms of what's actually out there, what probably is going on, we really have almost no idea. Um, from a classical microbiology perspective, we spend a lot of time um, in terms of environmental samples, collecting them, putting them into a lab condition with, with um, petri dishes and that kind of thing, seeing what we can get to grow and then doing all the work on the ones that grow easily. Whereas they may not actually be the ones that are doing most of the work. Um, mm. We might be able to grow the weeds that eat the really um, the junk food that we feed them. So in a lab, you might feed them sugar and, and busted up yeast cells and other things, which is a bit bit kind of like bacteria, like microbiological junk food. So the things that eat that are probably just the, the opportunists more than anything. So we may not even really be aware what's there because when we go to look at it in a lab, we haven't really refined those techniques yet. Um, but I certainly mm. think there is... Um, a, a good a good likelihood that there's a lot present in our soils that we can use beneficially that we haven't quite worked out how to do yet. Um, mm. I'm I'm pretty confident that that we can get there. Uh, we just haven't quite cracked it yet. <laughs> do Do you know if there's any traditional indigenous knowledge about fungi that still exists in Australia? There is there is a bit. Um, I'm I'm certainly uh, as much as um, a uh, mycologist, like someone who studies fungi and is interested in fungi, um, I'm aware of some of it, but I'm I uh, I'm only know a tiny fraction of what there is in terms of um, in, indigenous knowledge. We have a couple of of obvious species that um, that I know have a traditional use. I've read about. So if you've ever gone walking in a in a in some bushland, you've probably seen on the side of trees. It looks like a big bright orange like a big slice of orange peel or something that's growing yes. on the side of a tree and they turn up in a lot of places it's a species called Pycnoporus um, cochineus um, and it has a traditional use as uh, as an antiviral antibacterial so if you had a mouth ulcer or something like that you would take a piece of this of this bracket fungi and, and put it in your mouth and, and suck on it for sort of a half a day or whatever um, and reduce the, the severity of the mouth ulcer. And they've done some work on it and found that it does actually have some antiviral properties and, and other interesting compounds in it. Um, there is um, some food species that I'm, I'm definitely aware of, but as far as I know, um, they're not in any way commercialized or, or looked at. Um, there's a really unfortunately named... Um, species, the actual um, the actual scientific name is uh, Lacocephalum, but the common name is Blackfellow's bread. It's it grows kind of oh, uh, yeah yeah I know, um, but it, it or native bread I suppose is the other name, but it's Lacocephalum is the genus. It grows kind of like an underground resting structure. So in Australia we have um, obviously intermittent periods of flood and drought. And because fungi like water, in those drought times, they tend to form these underground resting structures that are a bit kind of like a fungal tuber or a mushroom potato, kind of. They store a whole lot of carbohydrates and protein and stuff. And then when you get rains again, the fungi actually germinate out of that kind of mushroom potato. So these things grow like a big underground mushroom tuber, which you can harvest, cook, and eat. And apparently is quite tasty. Um, 
I would love to find a, uh, one of these things and actually try culturing it. Whether I could actually get it to do what I wanted, I have no idea. But there are certainly there are certainly some species out there. Um, there, we we just probably haven't even looked at them or named them yet. There is such a diversity of stuff that we really just don't know about. Yeah. How how did you originally get interested in fungi? Um. Well, I did my um my undergraduate and honours uh, degree in biotechnology. So we did a lot of stuff with genetics, but a lot of kind of looking at um, biological resources um, and, and active compounds and that kind of thing and working out why they could have been formed and where they've come from and that kind of thing. So I went on and did a PhD in, in microbial ecology and that was really the bit that got me interested. I did a whole lot of work on these things called biofilms, which are these really complicated assortments of algae and fungi and bacteria and 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 protozoa, um, which kind of naturally led me on to mycorrhizal fungi, the ones that grow in association with trees and make forests work. And the very first year I learned about mycorrhizal fungi, I went out into um, the forests around where I live in Adelaide and actually for the first time looked for fungi and was amazed at the, a range of different things. And so my very first thought was, oh, I have to get some of these back in the lab. And I'd spent sort of three or four years trying to grow individual organisms out of these complicated biofilms. So chemically treating them and heat treating them and teasing them apart and doing stuff to get the individual organisms I wanted out. And so I treated soil and mushrooms a bit the same way. I went looking, found bits of wood that had mushrooms growing on them, tore it all apart, put them on agar plates and tried to get things to grow and eventually started isolating Australian native fungi and growing them. So that Pycnoporus, that thing I mentioned before, that bright red bracket fungi, I actually started growing that in the lab just because I wanted to see if I could and was sort of amazed that I could get this bright red thing popping out of of um, whatever I wanted, really, bits of wood and things. And as time went on, started to then realize I can probably do things with these organisms. I can probably get them to break compounds down and use waste and that's kind of the bit that interested me was when I realized you can really these things actually exist it's like magic you can get a piece of wood or a, or a or a piece of tissue and then multiply it and make it do things it's it wasn't an abstract concept it wasn't it wasn't uh, an invisible unknown thing it was actually a thing you could interact with and and do stuff with it really kind of blew my mind uh, i suddenly realized then there's so many of these things out there and we haven't even looked at them like we haven't even named them so right. that, that was kind of what got me into it and then i just went from there i started collecting different things growing them um trying to get students interested in it, collecting exam papers after they'd been graded and shredding them and growing edible mushrooms on that, collecting coffee grounds from the cafes on campus and um, feeding that to my mushrooms to try and get people interested in these things that I thought were incredible. But for some reason, I couldn't get other people excited about, which still blows my mind. Right. Using So talking about using agricultural waste and exam papers and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, ha- have you had challenges with, with that, like, for example, do you need to use a lot of energy to pasteurize that stuff or, or have you found that it's pretty easy to just collect stuff up and, and inoculate it with some mushroom spores? Um, there are definitely challenges. Everything you – if you really want to make it um, – it, it, you can do it very low energy and it can be hit and miss. Um, if you compost things properly and get it up to – 
the hot, like high composting temperatures, sort of 60, 70-ish degrees. Um, you can inoculate whatever you want into it. And if you treat it right, you can probably get your mushrooms to grow, but it's it's a little hit and miss. So you do need to have some kind of energy investment to pasteurize your substrate, whatever it is you're going to use. Um, so there is there is that you un- unfortunately if you if you're going to look at it from a from a commercial point of view there is um, a minimum energy investment in terms of the actual waste streams you choose um, that can also be a little bit hit and miss I've been uh, collecting coffee grounds from cafes and and restaurants and and quite coffee caravans and that kind of thing and some of them are really great and they they understand what I'm trying to do, and in their own right, they understand that that's uh, a product that you can do other things with. Um, they're generally pretty good. I'll I'll collect their coffee grounds, and it'll just be coffee grounds. And then some of the bigger cafes I'll go into, and I'll ask for for coffee grounds. I went into one um, and said, "Hey, I grow mushrooms, and I grow them on coffee grounds, and can I collect some of your coffee grounds?" And the woman said to me, "Oh, we throw them in the bin." And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I I know. Do you mind if I take them?" Uh, instead of you throwing them in the bin. And she said, ah, oh, well, we just throw them in the bin. Sorry. Right. And I didn't yeah. I didn't understand what was what she wasn't understanding. So I, I did finally uh, convince convince them. I came back the next week and asked for their 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 bin of coffee grounds. And in it was broken cuts um cups and plates and, and teaspoons, rubber gloves, empty milk bottles, receipts, um, pens all that kind of thing it, it was just another bin so when she said we just put it in the bin what she actually meant was it is waste and it gets mixed with all the other waste so there's been a few places that i collect that from as as a waste stream and then end up not even being able to use it because i have to pick through it and pick masses of other things out um it just becomes unfeasibly difficult because of all the other stuff mixed in so there are definitely challenges with every waste stream even if you're going to use agricultural wastes um, if you collect material that has been sitting in a field for six months and it's gone moldy and done other stuff it's probably not really suitable anymore it's already on its way to degrading and being used for other things it might be better just to compost that um, so there are some waste streams that are more amenable than others um, in in their life cycle to being used. Um, so there definitely are challenges to to using these materials in the kind of volumes that would make it work. Yes, sure. I'm also curious about the potential for fungi in areas outside food, like construction. I know you've experimented with making bricks out of mycelium. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that process? What makes fungi a good medium to use for making things well the nice thing about a fungus is it it grows in and around and through whatever you give it so um if say you you chose some sawdust for example and you put that in a mold of whatever shape you wanted and, and inoculated that with with um your mushroom tissue it'll slowly grow its way all through that mold and digest all of the sawdust, filling every little space that it can get at with mushroom tissue. So you don't need to mix mix it all through. You don't need to um, get it into every nook and cranny. It'll do the work for you. It's seeking out these bits of food that it can digest and it'll, it'll creep its way there. So in terms of filling really complicated structures, these things are great for that. They'll, they'll work their way through and digest it. The other nice thing about that is if you did get a material that in its own right was not structural but was bulky, like, like I mean, I said 
sawdust before, but you could be anything. You get shredded up corn cobs if you wanted. That's low value, has some structure structure to it, but isn't really bound in any way. I mean, one of the traditional ways you could use that is, say, to make um, a fiber board that you mix with resins and glues and other stuff and, and compress together. So you can make that, um, but it does take a reasonable amount of, of energy and chemical processing and that kind of thing. The nice thing about that is, this is if you took a product that was just d- 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 digestible by a fungus, let the mushroom get in there, eat it all, it'll knit it all together with, with the mycelium, the actual fungal tissue. It'll kind of weave it all together and give you something that's relatively structural depending on whatever mixture it is that you use. So once you treat that to stop the fungus growing and, and make this stuff inert, You've managed to knit together a product without using resins and glues. You've you've knitted it together with a compound that, after it's finished, you could crumble it up and and compost it, or if you wanted, you could paint it or lacquer it or whatever, and actually make it a bit more permanent. Um, so, you can use these things that, in their own right, aren't structural and are wastes, and turn them into something that has more use than just a pile of corn cobs. Um, so, I kind of like it from from that point of view. Is um, you can you can kind of make these things do what they naturally do, but actually behave in a way that's useful to us. So yeah, I was making really dense fungal bricks out of these things, the kind of stuff that you could stand on or make a tabletop. I was making really light, fluffy versions that you could poke things into and, and um, uh, hold water relatively well. So there is a there's a range of stuff you could we could do with them. We, we just kind of have to be creative and and think about it. Um, once again, it's another one of those things of I think the reason we're not doing it is just because we're not currently. I think once people catch on, I think there'll be a lot of people who start trying to capitalize on some of the things that these organisms do. Yeah, yeah. I think w- with with things like this that are new, I think there's always – and people who have sort of on the one hand good intentions but also – uh, like to support themselves by making a living. Yes. A, there might be a tension between uh, keeping your intellectual property and your discoveries private uh, compared with sort of sharing things open source. Have you have you thought much about how that that issue? It is a tricky one. Um, like you say, the some of this stuff is is great and should be shared and, and we should be doing things with it. Um, but at the same time, unfortunately, the way of the world is you need to find a way to to make your way in the world. So um, some of these ideas should, should and probably will end up being open source just because of what they are. Other ones probably need to be developed a little bit further uh, and some of them may not actually work on a bigger scale. It's really hard to... to to, to pick it just yet. I mean, I was, I did work in a university where my time and my thoughts and everything were paid for by the university. They kind of owned the IP that I came up with, um, but they paid me to do it. So I was able, I was, I was free to think of all the things that I wanted and, and find ways to use them. Um, I decided to, to leave that world and start trying to do things on my own, which like you say, opens up a, an entirely different path to take because everything that I think of is not worth anything unless I do something with it. So if I can't find a use for it, um, I can't find a way to turn it into um, an income stream for me, then it's really difficult for me to do anything with. So it might end up as a half-baked idea that never goes anywhere. It might end up as a product that I can actually do something with. It might end up with an, as an idea that I release to someone else um, to, to take over, to either 
to either use or or freely distribute um it is a it is a terrible challenge and one of the things that we are not great at sometimes in australia is a lot of the research generally gets done through universities um a lot of innovation in business happens through universities and there's not a lot of in-house really interesting research that happens sometimes we don't have independent chartered research companies like they do in europe and the us so a lot of innovators have to sort of tinker around the edges before they really come up with things. Um, I'm hoping that I don't exist in this no man's land forever. I hope I come up with a couple of ideas that can be useful, that people can actually pick up and do things with. Um, that being said, I don't want to hoard all these things to myself. I don't want to go to my grave with all these wonderful ideas that have never gone anywhere. So I'm currently trying to strike that, that balancing act between having enough to eat and also um, having enough that I spiritual, spiritually feel fulfilled as well. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's it's probably not a challenge that will come. You'll, you'll find an easy answer to. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> for, for someone who's interested in fungi and mycology, but is a, a more or less a beginner, would you, would you have a, a place for them to start? Are there any books or resources online or, or people to, to listen to that would give a good grounding? Um, well, you mentioned Paul Stamets before. He's certainly um, sort of the, the the mushroom cheerleader, really. He's, he's great. His enthusiasm and his, um, his ability to see places where you could take these things um, is, is great. He's a, his, um, there's a great talk that has, has been around for a while now um, about how mushrooms can save the world. So if you look up Paul Stamets' mushrooms save the yes, world, it'll, it'll I have up. actually seen that video, but yeah, and, I'll link to it. And one of the nice things about it is not necessarily just look at the amazing things we that that we could do with fungi, like the um, the things that we could either incorporate into processes or monetize or anything. The thing that if you look at it makes that talk really interesting is an, an ecosystems ecology thing. Like the, he's not these organisms are doing that without human intervention. He's he's just finding a way to use them. These things are naturally doing that. So if you watch that talk from an ecological point of view and think next time you go out into the forest, realize there are fungi that are um, breaking down the soil underneath your feet growing in association with the roots of the trees that are surrounding you, um, living inside the guts of termites, um, you know, um, filling the air with, with spores that will go on to colonize more things, infecting and parasitizing ants and moths and beetles and crickets and other things, and then using their bodies um, to, to make copies of themselves all these things are naturally happening and we're just not aware of it so watch that talk not just from a wow look at all the things we can do but also from a this stuff is going on all around you and you don't even realize it all the time point of view so i would i would definitely recommend that um i would i would recommend just going out in winter and actually looking is what kind of changed my mind is once you see how many fungi there are out there you really realize that you're you're pretty well surrounded by these things all the time. Um, so my my two bits of advice are realize that all these processes that you take for granted are interconnected and then go looking for the connections and you'll be you'll be very surprised. Absolutely. Right. Has that has that um 
has that metaphor or has that has that way that fungi worked um, sort of transposed itself as a metaphor onto the way you think about other things of, of the, the interconnectedness of of everything? I I guess so. In I guess in a lot of ways it, it probably has. Um, certainly, there's once you start to think about things from from system points of view it changes the way you look at individual processes when you when you design a process to do something um, if it generates waste if you can design either a way for that waste to be used in something else or um, it, it changes the way you think about it so that in- interconnectedness is I suppose a bit of a lesson it, it does sort of teach you that anything that can only or does only work in isolation may not be the we- the best way to do things. Um, anything that works in isolation is difficult to get inputs and outputs from because if it's if it's a single one in one out kind of thing, um, it's it's can be hard to scale and, and and hard to link. Whereas something that can take multiple things in and produce multiple things out, um, often if it's if it's designed well can be a multifunction process it does a lot with a little um so yeah that i guess that interconnected thinking has changed the way i look at stuff to a degree absolutely i mean i i don't know a lot about permaculture permaculture is not my area but certainly when you look at farming practices which we mentioned before and look at things like rotational cropping to reduce the incidence of pests year after year and improve soil quality and that kind of thing when you realize these things are connected they're not they're not just ones and zeros that letting everything have a go keeping things in balance making sure there's equilibrium that there's a range there's consortiums of things that work together it does kind of change the way you look at stuff i mean we mentioned soil before we've talked about soil a couple of times now but when you realize the way soil works is not because it's got it's all homogenous and it's sterile it works because it's filthy and it's full of billions and billions of billions of things all working together in equilibrium and if there's one thing that dominates that's when it starts to be a problem so everything being interconnected and everything working in balance is what makes a lot of these things work so i guess so in a very long and meandering answer yeah no definitely i I uh, concur with everything you said. Um, is there anything else you think I've missed or you'd like to add? Or, or also, if you'd like to tell people where they can find your work, that would be great. <laughs> well, I'm um, my, my work is pretty small scale now. Um, I, I'm just growing mushrooms for a farmer's market, but I hope to be able to do a range of different things in the future. I would love to see Australian natives, Australian native fungi, recognized for what they do but put back into the landscapes and put into people's consciousnesses so what i would love to do is um, at the moment i'm i'm just growing um gourmet mushrooms i sell them uh, at a little um in a suburb called wollonga in south australia at the wollonga farmers market um but um i'm hoping to at some point be able to say grow australian native fungi and put them in people's gardens and and say take these things and and put them where they should be they should be in your soil they should be breaking things down they should be there they're not scary um they they shouldn't be they shouldn't be kicked over and and shunned they're actually meant to be there um 
So look out for them. Enjoy them for what they do. Some of them are brightly colored and beautiful. Um, so I said it before, look up Pycnoporus. is a lovely bright blue thing. Look up um, a species called Mycena interrupter. Um, it's a bright blue little mushroom, absolutely gorgeous. Um, there's a heap of Australian natives. Look up a genus called Cortinarius. You've got bright greens and bright purples and all these colors. They're amazing organisms, and they should they should be there. So, I've I've gone off off the track again. But if I can at some point um, in the near future start getting these things in people's minds and maybe getting them in people's gardens, um, that would be amazing. I would like that a lot. Um, so. You're welcome to drop me a line, look me up. I'm um, my business is called Primordia Mushrooms. Um, send me an email, and I'm, I'll happily talk to you about fungi and what they can do and where you can find them. Um, I would, I would love to get the our collective consciousness raised about mushrooms. So um, please say hello, and I'll happily chat to you about fungi for as long as you can stand. Just about. Michael Taylor, a fascinating conversation. Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much for talking to me. Okay, thanks for listening. You can find show notes with links to all the people, projects, and books that were mentioned in the conversation by going to tangledpodcast.com. If you have feedback, let me know on Twitter. I'm at Julio underscore. That's H-O-O-L-I-O underscore. If you like the show, please share it and subscribe to Tangled in whichever podcast app you use. You could also rate the show in iTunes, which would be a huge help. And finally, you can sign up to my email newsletter. I'll let you know when new podcast episodes are released, and I'll send you a monthly list of good books, articles, and other podcasts to read and listen to. You can sign up at tangledpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll speak to you next time.